Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This is episode 49 with the talented Evelyn DeHaze. We're talking about the Mad Scientist Cabaret, which is a devised piece that she conceived with Zane Exactly, and it's opening October 30th at NX Theatre and runs through November 13th. And there are some late-night shows, a couple of industry nights. You can visit annextheater.org to find out more and get tickets. Also, there's a lot of great content being posted on Annex's Facebook page about this piece. So, please enjoy episode 49 with Evelyn DeHayes. I'm super excited to have Evelyn DeHaze on the podcast. Welcome, <laughs> Evelyn. We haven't worked together, but I feel so connected to you, and I just don't, I don't even know why, but I'm, I'm glad that I do, and I'm glad that you're here to talk about the Mad Scientist Cabaret. Well, I'm happy to be here. So, this is a devised piece. For some of our listeners who might not know what that means... Can you give sort of the Cliff Notes definition of what a device piece is, different from a scripted piece of theater? Sure. Well, um, let's see. It's October 15th today, and a month ago, this piece didn't exist at all. <laughs> Zero of this piece existed. Um, basically, what we've done is we've uh, cast seven people, and by we, I mean Zane, Zane Exactly, who is my co-creator, um, and myself, um, and we spent two weeks just training them in all the things that I could think of to give them a common vocabulary. So we went through and we trained. We had a whole day dedicated to viewpoints. We had a whole day dedicated to clowning. We had a whole dedica- day dedicated to uh, like the sort of games that you play when you're a second or third grader. Right. So like, you know, oh, let's play Foursquare. Let's play Red Light, Green Light. You know, silly stuff. Oh, we had a whole day dedicated to burlesque, a whole day dedicated to puppetry. Basically, going through um, uh, skills that we both knew very well, so I have a huge background in clowning, and skills that we know less well, um, and exploring them as a cast for hours and hours together, and then giving them uh, some uh, texts that I have been preparing for the past year, so maybe the, uh, the paragraph from Frankenstein where they first... Dis- where the monster first wakes up or uh, this snippet of an H.P. Lovecraft poem that I'm a particular fan of and just giving them these and saying, hey, now that you've worked with clowning for four hours, go make something. You have 15 minutes. See you in 15. Bye. And that's how we've been generating work and getting this cast to uh, make things. And then after those first two weeks of training, uh, sitting down, talking about what we really believe mad science to be and making a show. It's it's a weird process. Where did this, uh, maybe taking it back to you, how did you and Zane first connect? How did you meet and start working together? Uh, Well, um, I moved to Seattle about two years ago, and I had lived in Chicago for eight years. And then from Chicago, I went and lived in Montreal, where I went to clown school. And (laughs) when I was done with clown school, I was like, you know what I'd really like to do? Not live somewhere really cold. (laughs) 
Um, and I didn't know actually anything about Seattle moving here. I didn't know that there was a theater scene. I did almost no research before moving here. Uh, my partner was, uh, has, has always wanted to live in Seattle, and I thought, that sounds like the most boring place on earth to live. <laughs> and I thought we were only going to live here for like three or four months, because that's kind of what we were doing at that point right. in our lives. Then I moved here, and in my first week of living here, uh, I knew one person here, and she goes, hey, you know, you do puppetry and stuff and clowning. Yeah, yeah, I do. There's this guy I know who's, who, he makes puppets now, my friend Zane, and she brought me to a party, and he was so excited to meet me that he actually packed this, like, lunch box that had his this little puppet that he made. And so at this big party where everyone else is getting drunk and fucked up, um, he, like, pulls out this little, cl- like, like Bunraku puppet that he's made. And he's like, look at how it can dance. And that's how we met. <laughs> and um, the literally three days later was the Fussy Cloud Puppet Slam, which is a local puppetry slam that does really great work. Uh, puppetry for adults. And... He performed this little, uh, a little piece there that was okay. The puppetry was really good, but the storytelling was not that great. And he clearly wasn't a performer. So after the show, I went up to him and I said, hey, listen, I don't know anyone here, but I know a lot about theater. Would you like to collaborate? And that is basically what... That was two years ago. The rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> Have you done projects... What are the projects you've done before this piece? So uh, a big thing that I'm into is uh, educating and training and uh, developing small pieces in preparation for larger pieces. So Zane had never taken any acting classes um, or anything like that. Uh, and he, it's, it's annoying working with him because he's so good. Um, <laughs> so, so initially, so I was like, yeah, let's like make a piece together. And, and he goes, yeah, I, really, I can't wait to like do the puppetry. And I said, no, I'll do the puppetry. You'll do the acting even though, like, obviously this is my skill and not yours. Right. So I sort of forced him on stage, and we built this little, this tiny little piece for the next Puppetry Slam where I really forced him to be the lead, um, or at least the lead in terms of he was the actor on stage in, in, interacting with the puppets, and um, just started directing him. And then from there, we basically built five or six small pieces over the course of the year, each of which we performed at various slams. And they were to varying degrees of success, but it was about us learning how to work together, learning how to make work from scratch. Everything we made was from scratch. Um, and uh, slowly our products became more and more ambitious. And now this is what we're working on. Full-length show, so. That's awesome. Uh, so, what was was there a night when you were hanging out and you're like, you know, it would be cool, med science. Like, let's do like a full length, full length work, and let's put it up at, at a bigger space and not just a slam. Like, what was that moment for you? Yeah. Well, um, so before I moved here, I had uh, been working with this theater company in Chicago called the Harlotry and Necromancy Appreciation Society, which was, uh, yeah, uh, Chicago's only all-female physical theater uh, troupe, and it was three of us, and what we would do is we would pick these big themes, and then we would build shows around them, so we would build a show that was for a birth, we'd say, what's a birthday party 
What, how do you make a show out of a birthday party? Good day. What's a show about sports? How do you make a show about sports? What's a show uh, about bedtime stories? And so we would, we would just spend three months entirely investigating all aspects of um, a theme and then out of that make a show, and the shows would be about 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, and science, before I left, science was on the table as what would be our next show, and um, it never came to fruition. So it was something I'd already spent a lot of time thinking about. And at a certain point, after about maybe about a year working with Zane, I said, you know, I think that we're ready to build a full-length show together. And so we proposed it to Annex about a year ago, so over a year ago, and everyone got really excited about it. Um, people uh, didn't quite know what we were going to pull out of our hats, and they still don't quite know what we're going to pull out of our hats. We still don't quite know what we're going to pull out of our hats. Right. Um, but everyone was really thrilled about the idea of creating something that was brand new, really from scratch. Um, Annex is dedicated to bold new work, and I think that's amazing. But for me, I think the boldest and the newest things you can do is getting away from scripts entirely. Yeah. Why, let's, let's dig into that more. Why do you think that that's... Why is that... How have you come to that philosophy? Well, I think that um, art empowers people. And one thing I've seen a lot and I think is a problem with not just Seattle theater, but theater in general, is that we do the same things over and over again. Why are we doing plays by you know, old white men and not, not putting a twist on them or, or reimagining them or recasting them in interesting ways? And I think that... Um, you know, in, I think that Seattle has a problem where we don't empower directors nearly enough to think outside of the box, um, and that we seriously need to empower people to think about work differently. Um, and my goal with Mad Scientist Cabaret was to empower the people who are in my cast to create. So what you'll see when you come see Mad Scientist Cabaret, yes, it's stuff that I've thought a lot about, and some of my ideas are on stage, but a lot of the majority of the work that you'll see is actually these seven people. Um, here, I'll read off their names yeah, right now. Yeah, tell me so about it. your cast. Yeah, so it's a really amazing, amazing group of people. So we've got Zane Exactly, who's a puppeteer. We have Jackie Medema, who's just this fantastically amazing comedian who's been in a lot of things uh, recently. Uh, Jordan Moeller, who's fresh out of college. Um, Marcus Gorman, who's mostly known to being, being, as being a writer. Jessica Stepka, who's mostly known as being a clown. Eliza Delpan-Monley, who's mostly known as a dancer. <laughs> Kirsten Dean, who's mostly known as a classical actress. And these people are all completely different. Um, so it's bringing them together and sort of saying, here's the shared vocabulary, here's this shared vision. What can you make out of it? So the majority of the work is generated by them and then honed by me and my wonderful associate director, Tussie Spangles, who also does a lot of device theater, especially with the Libertinis. And so the two of us looking at their work and saying, this works, this doesn't work. So rather than us imposing any vision upon them, it's really trying to see where they go and then from there trying to make a full-length show that doesn't necessarily have a plot, but it has an emotional narrative to it, um, and it's tr it's saying something about how we feel about mad science without necessarily hitting a, a, you know the audience over the head with 
you know, these are mad scientists. Yeah. <laughs> um, the joke that Tootsie was telling me the other day is that with devised work, you have to come up with the title so far in advance. And then once you actually start devising the work, you go, oh, oops, <laughs> maybe that wasn't actually what our show is about. We feel like it's still appropriate, but in many ways, we, uh, we feel like this is a show in which the directors are the mad scientists and we're just sort of like putting our <laughs> actors through these weird experiments and seeing what comes out the other end. And it's a lot of fun. I think that I love the image. I'm assuming that you designed the image for marketing. Yes. Um, and there's a tagline, it's embrace your inner monster. Learn to love your inner Learn monster. Learn to love your inner monster. Apologies for the paraphrasing. It's okay. Uh, I just kind of want to talk about that a little bit about, I think sometimes in society we sort of uh, push down the dark, you know, the darkness is unwanted. We don't want to go there. We want to keep it light. And yet we're drawn to American Horror Story. We're yeah. drawn to Breaking Bad, to Dexter, to exploring the darker sides of humanity. And so just talk, just talk about embracing or loving the darkness within and how, why is that inspiring to you? Yeah. And, and, and yeah, just go from, that's a very convoluted question, but have fun with it. <laughs> well, um, so before we start, before you start devising any work, you have to really create a room that has a, that ha, has space for vulnerability. It has space for honesty, the honesty to say, I don't like this, or I do like this, and I know that you don't like this, but here's, here's why I think it's important. Um, and it's really hard, especially with seven people who didn't even know each other before walking into this rehearsal room, to make sure that everyone that no one is getting defensive uh, about their work, that no one is feeling like they're not being heard. And so before we even start the work, uh, we do what we, we do, uh, we create a palette, um, which means that we sit down, we sort of talk about, a little bit about the show. I showed them this, there's this really great um, European style uh, clowning piece called Slava Snow Show. It's on YouTube, people can look it up. It's fantastic. Um, and that's the style of work that I want to create. Of course, they had like a million do dollars and, you know, or millions of dollars and won a bunch of Tonys. So I don't have that budget. But, you know, sort of showing them this vignette-oriented work. And then from there, I said, okay, let's just write down everything that you can think of that relates to mad science. And we just sat around my apartment for like an hour and a half, just like writing on index cards things like, you know, uh, chemical burns or betrayal, jealousy, um, creation, egomania, it's just various things, some really big themes like, you know, death and destruction, some really small things like goggles and, you know, the paraphernalia, you know, right. beakers. Um, and then at the end of that, I said, okay, what are the things that we are not going to put on our stage and we are not going to bring into our room? And things like, uh, there weren't that many things that went up, but things like uh, we, like rape, we don't we don't talk about it. We don't deal with it. Um, we had one text that, that, that delved into a little bit, um, but it's not something that we're interested in portraying on stage. Uh, transphobia, homophobia, sexism, racism, all that stuff. And then also one thing that made it onto that list was not treating our audience like they were idiots. Um, and that's it. So basically anything that was on that list, which is really just being discriminatory and uh, this act of... Um, you know, sexual violence, 
Um, otherwise, everything is fair game, which is can be very difficult and scary in rehearsal sometimes because we, you know, we ha- we had a day where we were exploring death to a pretty extreme fashion, but we had to kind of go there and see how far could we portray and push death in order to go past it to absurd to absurdity. So we go past death and uh, going into the absurdity of death, which is like watching someone with toasters on their hands be electrocuted for 45 seconds. <laughs> and it's just the dumb, you know, in dying and like the in slow-mo to the Moonlight Sonata. Like how more dramatic and absurd can you get? Um, and we, tr- we tested that piece out at Spin the Bottle to, and people really enjoyed it. And you know, you're sort of telling them, oh yeah, we, this is like the dumbest thing that we could have brought. Like, no, it's not dumb. Like, yes, yes, it's dumb. We love that it's dumb. We're trying dumb things out because that's how we as humans can understand them. That's the, the joy of clowning. Um, and also in my room, we have a safe word. If ever anyone's physically or emotionally feeling like they're in danger, they just shout out pineapple. And we stop. No matter what we're doing, we stop immediately and we discuss, okay, what's going on? What is it because uh, you're actually physically in danger, um, which has happened, you know, because clowning is very physical, or is something just making you not feel good? And do we need to just figure out why it's not making you feel good and what, like, whether we can continue the work on this at all or what, how can we accommodate this person, this creator, um, and make sure that they can continue? So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult, it's a very difficult uh, tightrope to walk. Um, I personally believe that it is the director's job to um, take charge that everyone who's in their rehearsal room feels like they are being respected, both as a person and as a creator, and that the buck initially, like, really stops with them. And I've worked with directors who don't feel that way, and... Um, it sucks as an actor when you sort of feel like your director doesn't care about you. Um, and I think that as a result, um, we've got some weird stuff that's come out of, come out of these people and they're, they, they trust each other more than I think they, you know, than they would normally in an ensemble. So it's pretty cool. I want to unpack that a little bit. When you talked about the, um, playing games that one might play Mm -hmm. in, in elementary school is part of that encourage, I think, as actors, we all come from very different trainings. Mm-hmm. Is some of that kind of encouraging them to unlearn some of the things that have been drilled into them as absolutes in training? Oh, absolutely. That's definitely part of it. Part of it is just, that was our first day, right? So you have these seven strangers walking into a room. What's more exciting? It's like, okay, we're going to play Foursquare. Okay, like, you're not going to be able to think about anything you just have to focus on winning four square and from that you know for me personally I'm actually watching them saying okay this person's a leader this person doesn't like being in power this person will if even if they um, were in the right they will if if someone says that they're out they'll just go out this person even if they're in the wrong if someone says that they're out they'll stay in and so learning a lot about the natural um, impulses of people and um, how later to pair them up and how to you know, exploit those impulses. Um, I always tell people that, um, that clowning uh, c- comes in four steps. 
which is that, first of all, everyone has a clown. Everyone, anyone can clown. And I very, very, very strongly believe that. It's just a matter of work and tenacity. Um, and that you have to, that it goes in four steps where you have to reveal your clown, you have to accept your clown, you have to love your clown, and you have to share your clown. And a lot of people can't get past accepting. And the reason for that is because a, cl- uh, a, a, a clown represents the best parts of yourself and the worst parts, parts of yourself. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of under the gun to really, really, you know, get work done fast. So I had to be very honest with my, with my clowns and say, listen, it took me five years to accept that my clown is lazy. My clown is so lazy because I am a lazy person. And I am in huge denial about the fact that I'm lazy, about the fact that I am angry. These are these things that I'm like, no, no one will ever know. No one can find out that I actually secretly like, have you know, rage problems. But my clown teacher comes up to me and she goes, dude, it's so funny. Now she doesn't say dude because she's French. So in French she says, uh, <laughs> she says, like, what are you doing? You have like all this opportunity to be funny as an angry person, as an angry clown, but you're in denial about the fact that that's like the worst part of you. You have all this opportunity to show like humor by being honest about the fact that, you know, deep down, you're kind of a lazy person. So having to, and sharing that with my, with my people and saying, listen, some of you are greedy, some of you are selfish, some of you are jealous, some of you have pride, and I want you to understand that that's okay in this room. Um, but also, some of you are intelligent, some of you are very well-spoken, some of you are very kind and generous and uh, graceful, uh, etc. And those are the other things that you have to accept. You have to accept your best, and you have to accept your worst, and that's how you make a good clown. That's how you clown. And you, can only, and you have to do both. Because that honesty, showing that level of honesty on stage, is what engages an audience. They go, oh yeah, that's real. Oh, yeah. that's real. Honesty. It's interesting what two thoughts come to my head uh, after after you saying that is how um, how on social media we're always <laughs> portraying our best self or the self that we want right. others to consume. And then the other thought was how uh, as performers, a lot of times we're we're out even expanding on that, we're, we're asking people to come to shows, we're out and about, we have a certain public persona. Absolutely. I mean, to a lesser degree, you know, us in Seattle, I mean, versus Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper, right. it's a different scale, but then hold with me, because I'm, I'm getting to a question eventually, maybe, <laughs> or maybe I'm just talking and that's fine. Um, I'm embracing my inner Mark Marin, maybe, uh, but I don't know. It's just how, I love that. I love what you're saying. Embracing the best and worst of yourself, and then this really honest work can come out. Mm-hmm. How do we learn to do that when we're not in an awesome rehearsal room led by you? I mean, well, what's your primer for? Because I think embracing our inner clown, just as a metaphor for life and, and being a good human being and a performer in the world, is a really powerful thing. And so, like, what would be your like? Brought, you know, um, distilled down primer for like embracing the best and worst of yourself as a performer when you're not in a clowning situation, but in a rehearsal hall, you know, interfacing with other people, just being a performer in the world. 
Well, honestly, I don't think it always works. <laughs> I mean, I, I do my best, and I have definitely rubbed people the wrong way because we're, we are naturally, I think humans are naturally defensive and expecting that, um, you know, someone with good intentions might not have them. And I found that certain that people sometimes don't like working with me and some people do and it's and what I have found is that by being the way that I am and and sort of trying to be as open and as honest that it's people love it or they hate it and that you can't please everyone and the people who love it like those are the people that you need to work with and the people who hate it you just need to learn you know and this is not an easy thing to do you need to learn to be open to the fact that they that they that's how they are and not get too bogged down by it right um and i have there's there have been people who you know initially have been sort of like oh you're like you know you're really you really just say what you mean and that's annoying and then later <laughs> like oh actually that's pretty valuable or or they continue to dislike it and that's that's life you know and uh i just try to be i try to be as honest and genuine as I can, and I don't always succeed. I'm me and everyone else. We're all we're all social creatures, and you just do your best. Uh, the the uh, philosophy of clowning is that if you if the clown does his or her best, that the audience will love them, and that's the nature to me of the human. That's the human condition, which is why when people go see clown shows, very good clown shows they're heartbroken and they laugh they they laugh and they laugh and they laugh and then they go home and they cry and that's that's when when you've really seen work that has moved you to that point you realize it's because that person showed a fragility and a vulnerability that is rare um and so my goal is just to keep doing this kind of work and seeing if other people will work with me and espousing you know positivity and also but also saying you know for me um, improvement is is important and criticism is important so I love it when people come see my work and say oh this is how many feel and I didn't like it or I think that this part is sloppy and I go great like thank you for your feedback and being um, graceful graceful to feedback that is negative but also learning how to give feedback is an ever um, it's a learning experience that I think everyone goes through. Um, there's, I can't remember what her name is, but there's this really great woman who talks about how how best to give feedback. And Are you a lot of about Liz Lerman. Yes, Liz Lerman, and I like love the crap out of her philosophy, which is very much because it's not what's good, what was bad. It was what what did you feel? What did you think was successful? And then the person who's receiving feedback yeah. can ask if. What, what is it? Uh, are there questions you want to ask of the audience members, yeah. and they can say no of it? When you can also say, yeah. And so a big a big thing that we do in our in our work in our rehearsal room is we I split up the groups. Often I say, okay, uh, Marcus and Eliza go work on something, and you two go work on something, and you two, and you three go work on something, and you have fifteen minutes. Go, bye. Like I, and then I'll I'll like kind of wander around and watch what they're doing, but I try not to insert myself too much. They show us what they've done, and it's usually like pretty interesting but very rough um sometimes it's very off the mark and what we always do is they're done we we applaud and we say okay what what did you see what worked what didn't work that's it and so people say i saw a power dynamic i think the power dynamic works 
or I think it doesn't work. Um, I saw an exchange of, uh, of sound. I saw this, I saw that, and it worked or it didn't work. And it allows, and the first day that we did it, everyone's, you know, completely on edge and, you know, you're watching and hoping that no one takes things the wrong way, no one takes anything personally. And that's been the biggest achievement of this rehearsal room is like really training people to take criticism um, because that's the only, like, you know, that's the only way to improve themselves. And it's been unfreaking. I mean, they're, they're an unbelievable cast. They're so open-hearted and generous with one another. I couldn't be more happy to be working with them. Taking it back to your process a little bit, at what point do you say, it's cooked, it's done, we just need to, we need to do run-throughs for, yeah. <clears throat> you know, solidifying what this piece will actually be? You open October 30th? Yeah. At what point do you draw that line? Or do you keep giving modifications, mm-hmm. changing order until dress rehearsal? Well, for me, Act 1 is cooked, except that I've thrown it into the freezer and it needs to go back into the oven and some spice needs to be added. So for me, like, I'm the ultimate decision maker there because I'm the one who's uh, ultimately seeing the framing device or the frame of everything. And I need to make sure that the arc makes sense. So um, on our very first day of working, I told everyone, we're going to kill some of your babies. There's going to be things that you're really attached to and uh, we're going to kill them. So we all practiced, you know, like we, we played this very silly gesture passing game where everyone went around saying like, this is how I would kill my baby. And it was like, you know, very, you know, it was just like super dark, super, super screwed up, but also like I got everyone in this like mode of like, sometimes you kill your work. Um, so right now act one is in a very good spot. Act two, we're still generating. And so we're ideally next week it'll be run through run through run through and it'll slowly be an editing 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 so things like some of the feed some of, I got a feedback you know the other day from some people I really respect a lot and I'm going to be incorporating some of that feedback in which means doing some cuts in some places and also using uh, sound and light to help uh, direct a few more things that I think um, now don't have a frame um, and so it's cooked the day we open. And even then, things change. I mean, it's, it's clowning is, to a, to a certain degree, improv. I've seen uh, one of my favorite clowning troops in the world is this group called 500 Clown. And they do this group, they do this, uh, they do, they have a few plays. One of them is 500 Clown Macbeth, where it's three clowns do Macbeth. And it's one of the funniest things you've ever seen in your entire life. They also, but it's also very serious and also one of the saddest things you've ever seen in your entire life. They do uh, 500 Clown Frankenstein, which is their portrayal of Frankenstein, which honestly terrified me and made me question whether I was a good person or not. But also, I laughed for 45 minutes of their 50-minute show. And then that last five minutes, I was like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? Um, and that's, that, those, those guys, they're the experts. Um, um, but they, I've talked to, you know, Leslie Danzig, uh, who's their artistic director, is an amazing human being. And she has given me a lot of, she told me that, you know, some of those works, like, took five years to get to the point where they were like, yeah, now. And, you know, they had already been working on 500 Comic Beth for about five years. And then it went to the Steppenwolf and became one of the visiting artists. And that's about when they started becoming more well-known in Chicago. So they were still, you know, working it and figuring it out. And so it always evolves. And so they meet up, you know, and we're not going to do this as much with this show, but we're doing the show at the, at the Chicago Fringe Festival. So once we're done with our run at Annex, we're going to sit down and say, okay, what worked? What didn't work? 
like what feedback did we receive? And so it will be a living, breathing piece. Our goal is to eventually take take at least take some of it on the road and do like a, a West Coast tour. Um, maybe take some of it to Chicago. Maybe take some of it to New York. I mean, the work is living, breathing. It might change names. It might change casts. It might. Who knows where it will go? But the idea is to keep working and to keep improving because that's all that you can do is working, doing device theater. You have to keep making and making and making. So let's give people the dates. I want to make sure that we don't lose oh, yeah. all of the logistical <laughs> logistics. Um, so it opens October 30th. Yes. How many performances are there and where can people find information? So there's, it opens October 30th and also, uh, and so it's Fridays and Saturday nights at 11 p.m. So it will be on Halloween. It will be a great Halloween destination show, actually. We're encouraging people to get up in costume and, and have fun and, you know, get drunk. Um, but uh, it will also be running uh, until November 13th, and it's and uh, because of Spin the Bottle 60 Seconds Max, we have two industry night shows, which are Monday and Tuesday, November 9th and 10th at 8 p.m. Oh no, sorry, 7:30 p.m. Woo. We just changed all of our times, 7:30 p.m. Um, so there's six opportunities to see it, and then uh, and I hope you come out. I think it'll be it's it's a weird thing you might not like it you might really love it uh, we've gotten definitely already polar responses but even someone who came in, who came and saw our run of first act who says you know he didn't like it he emailed me the next day and was like I can't stop thinking about it, it it's so weird you're so weird you yeah. know nice work so he's you know like a lot of the feedback we've get, been getting is that it's constantly surprising because it just goes in weird directions um, so it's it's definitely something that I think that people who are used to what you know, who it's it's for a late night crowd in a big way. It's it's very avant garde. There's there's a lot of you know it's kind of it's R rated. Let's not you know deny ourselves that. But we also think that it very much appeal to the theater crowd. In a I mean in a big way. From from my perspective, a lot of this kind of work is what's already being done in the mainstream theater in Chicago and New York, uh, which is where you know I'm from. And I'm hoping to sort of bring more of that weirdness into Seattle and see what people think, and hopefully they go, hey, more of this, please. That is an admirable goal, and we'll I see, see that... <laughs> dear listeners, you cannot see the fire behind her eyes as she says that, but I assure you, we'll it's see. there. Uh, and we want to point people towards annextheater.org. Yes. That's where they're going to get all of the information. We also have a Facebook uh, in, uh, group, where we're, or Facebook uh, event, and we're posting weird videos and photos and interviews throughout so you can get sneak peeks of that uh and uh, if you're listening yeah. to this if you're listening to this podcast i i think there's a high likelihood that you already <laughs> like annex theater on facebook and follow them on twitter but if not get on that people come on come on you're, you're going to be getting especially since you're a marketing i don't know if i like the word maven but you're a marketing professional and a yeah uh stellar graphic artist, which is kind of where I want to go next. Oh, uh, sure. And so you're going to get some really awesome, badass content about this show by looking at Annex's social stream. So do it! Um, I hear their marketing director at Annex is like really busy directing a show though, oh my so gosh. I don't know what's going on with her. The, the, <laughs> you! It's a joke. Uh. <laughs> it's a, uh, I, I did a... Um, I interviewed Clayton Weller earlier this week, and I was like, eh, the Island Shakespeare Festival. He's like, oh, they just, so they do Chekhov, right? I'm like, no. And it was completely a joke, and it went over my head completely. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay. That's part of the, gull, gull, my gullible nature is 
part of my clown that I can learn to embrace. There you go. Uh, I want to talk about your artwork, your visual artwork, okay. because I love it. For my, <laughs> for my birthday, you did a amazing drawing of me, which made me very, very, very happy. Uh, but you also do comic book art. Yeah. Um, tell me, I mean... Tell me about the projects you're working on that are sure. the visual arts projects, and then maybe if we can segue into how these two different uh, genres of art feed each other for you. Uh, well, I'm currently working on a comic book with a local writer, playwright, um, Scott O'Moore, who is, <sighs> who is amazing. That's amazing. That's yeah, he's awesome. a really... He is uh, pretty extraordinary, and um, about a year ago, a year and a few months... We were at the Annex Theater Retreat, and we were just, you know, kvetching. And, uh, you know, he was like, I've always wanted to write a comic book. And I was like, do you know, as, a, as an artist, a visual artist, how many writers have come up to me with these, like, shitty, half-baked right, ideas for comic books and then been, like, completely unwilling to, like, listen to anything I had to say um, about, like, hey, maybe you should have some non-white, non-male leads often is... The art. I literally had a guy once be like, "But how can I write a w- woman without a romantic, you know?" In- he goes, "I don't really want to have any romantic interest with this." And I was like, "Just write a man and make it a woman, for fuck's sake." Um, yeah. Sorry, my swear yeah. like a sailor. Um, but it was it really pissed me off. And this is the sort of thing I run into a lot. And it's a hard thing to remind yourself of that the same uh, sort of diversity needs that you have to. Uh, that you know the problems that you run into in like film and theater, um, those same problems like occur when uh, you're drawing. And um, the uh, Bitch Planet, which is a fantastic comic, um, apparently the writer is a uh, sorry. The writer is this woman named Kelly Sue, and the the um, the artist I don't remember their name. I think it's a black guy, and she goes to him like, you know, if I don't specify the character is white. Um, uh, make them a person of color and he kept forgetting because you know it's just so it's just the way that we are built and uh, it's really something that's occurred to me a lot and the more I like watch TV shows and and, uh, read things like how many people are white so what Scott and I have done is you know we first of all he came up he has this amazing world science fiction world that he's been building um, for for, since he's been working on it since he was in high school and He's an old coot, so it's been around for a while. Um, and uh, so, you know, the decision that we made was, let's assume that if we have a character that they're a person of color and probably a woman, and then we'll move from there. <laughs> like, so we went further to that. And so uh, he he's written this really amazing script. Um, we've published two short stories. We were just kind of trying to figure out how to work together. So two short stories that kind of lead into the world. They've got characters from the world, but we mostly just learned a lot about storytelling in comic book form. You know, I don't care if you think that you know how comics work. I thought I knew how comics work. It's only once you start working on them that you were like, oh, wow, this is so hard. This is so different. It's such a different format. And it took us about a year to get comfortable with, our, with the story that we were working on. And so we're only just now getting into the meat of the storyline. And uh, it follows this um, woman um, named Winderia Gallus, I think is her name. I can't remember what the last name is. Scotto gets mad at me because I forget the names of the characters all the time. Um, <laughs> um, and sometimes I do it intentionally just to piss him off. Sorry, Scotto. Um, and uh, so, it's, 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 so this woman, Windiria, and she is an alien. 
and she's go, she's traveling dimensions for the first time ever, and she's from this society that is all women, and uh, she travels into this other dimension where like there's this infinitely tall building, and on every floor of the building is a different uh, universe, um, multiverse. I don't know. It's this is the secret history of the multiverse, I suppose. So yeah, so there's different dimensions on every building. Uh, this Scotto is a playwright, and he has written some plays about this world before. I think uh, uh, what's it called? Um, there was one. I, I can't remember what the names of them are. But so he's written about uh, he's written about this before, and um, there. So he's thought a lot about this world. So now we're trying to like we're, we're working on this three book arc. We'll see. We'll see if we can shake it out. It's a lot of work. A page takes about twelve hours. Wow. to make from start to finish and that's like the minimum amount of time it makes it takes and then if you have like a really complicated panel in there that has a lot of architecture or rockets or whatever then that takes way longer um, just because you have to figure out the perspective of everything all that stuff it's not very interesting to talk about but it takes a lot of it, time it is it is interesting <laughs> um, and so yeah so we're getting work, we're working on that and it's fun and it's a passion project um, and I'm not making any money at it, but our hope is to, at some point, make money at it, and that could be a whole co- new career path that we're delving into. So we'll see. We'll see. That's excellent. Uh, oh, Thank I you for sharing. I probably say what it's called, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. Scott, I was going to be listening to this being like, God damn it, Evelyn. Um, uh, so it's, uh, it's called Storm and Desire. We have our website, stormanddesire.com. You can join our newsletter. We should be publishing the first episode in about a month. Um, maybe. That's very that's kind of wishful thinking, but not really. Uh, we're, we're probably going to start publishing about a page a week, and then uh, we'll just keep going from there, and we'll see what we'll see how it, how it turns out. Are these two, is the, is the theater making and, and the visual art, are they siloed for you, or do they feed each other? Do you sort of put on, one, like, okay, I'm taking off my theater hat and putting on my artist hat, or is it more um, symbiotic than that? It kind of depends. Um, uh, I'm, I can be an incredibly, so, I have a, a very, very split personality in many ways. Um, I love going out and partying and being social and all that stuff. And that's, I think, where the theater stuff comes in. But I also just love being alone in my house and just working for hours and hours and hours. And I think that that's where the visual art really feeds me. Um, I like that I can make a living doing visual art. Um, I've been a freelance illustrator and graphic designer for since I graduated college in 2009. Um, and I love it. I love making art as a living. It's very hard. Um, and oftentimes people, you know, will pull the crap of like, oh, but you love it, so I shouldn't pay you anything, you know. And that's rough. Um, I actually really enjoy giving advice to people who are starting out doing freelance because I've been doing it for so long. So um, at the current moment, I'm only taking gigs that I find that either pay incredibly well or I find really interesting um, because I am so strapped for time. So that's the biggest, the biggest problem is that I'm so strapped for time, and so I spend all day working on my comic, and then I go to rehearsal, and I then spend, you know, four hours at rehearsal, and then I go home, and then I spend an hour and a half, you know, watching cartoons or something with my partner, and then we go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really into Gravity Falls recently. Can I just say, like, yeah. I, uh, Gravity Falls is this, like, is this cartoon that's being done by Disney, 
and um, my entire apartment is completely addicted to it. We are obsessed with it. It's so good. I, you know, you know the whole like, oh, kids don't have good cartoons. Like, like, I, yeah, this cartoon is the best cartoon I've ever seen in my entire life. It's about these two kids who are in this mysterious town called Gravity Falls and all of the shenanigans that they get up to. And it's super dumb. It's super funny. I love it. So I watch that a lot. Um. Right on. <laughs> uh, do you have any uh, preview of any other theatrical projects that you are working on coming up? No, I'm pretty focused on uh, applying to grad schools, and uh, okay. we'll see. We'll see how that goes. And um, how do you? What? Sorry, I just I got so excited about that that I got tongue tied. Uh, what <laughs> kind of programs are you looking at? Uh, I'm looking at directing programs that are more experimental, or devising programs that specifically have um, a. Uh, a, a directing path within them because some devising programs are about the performative aspect and while I love performing um, and I want to keep performing I feel like I have a lot I have a lot of knowledge already about how to create work as a performer in device theater and I would love to get better improve myself as a director making device theater so there's there's some pretty great programs out there um, some of them are across the pond and uh, uh, some of them are, you know, I like Pig Iron has a really fantastic program, but it's still new and they're still figuring out who they are and all that stuff. Um, so I'm just kind of checking out a whole bunch of different places and sort of seeing where the chips fall. Well, I wish you the best of luck with <laughs> yeah, that. We'll see. You, again, dear listeners, you can't see this, but I've been taking notes the entire time of like, oh, I got to check that out. Oh, yeah, I want to see that now. Um, <laughs> you are a fountain of. Amazingness. Well, that's really sweet of you. And I'm so glad that you came and <laughs> sat down and talked to me uh, today. And so, folks, you're going to want to visit AnnexTheater.org and their Facebook and their Twitter to learn more about Mad Scientist Cabaret opening October 30th. You're not going to want to miss this one. You're going to have... It's going to be a wild ride. Can we say that? It's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a wild I ride. I think we're, we're, we've been talking about it. It's a tightly packed journey into insanity. I think that's okay. That's could we could we, <laughs> could we end on could you could you give us could you give us one of maybe your favorite lines from the show so far? Oh God! Uh, well, they don't talk very much um, as clowns, but um, let me think for a second. We have this extraordinary piece towards the end of Act One that is like we really wanted to do um, brain surgery on stage, and we were like, how the hell do we? We have almost no budget to speak of, right? right? So we're like, okay, how do we do brain surgery on the cheap that looks good? And uh, so we have this really cool um, uh, piece, but it turns into like, oh no, accidentally we've like popped open this person's brain and brain juice is spewing out. And <laughs> the character's reactions to that is to have a tea party. They're like, oh, well, like, how do we deal with all this liquid? Like, and so, like, one character brings out a bunch of teacups, and they start to, like, have a really proper tea party while someone's brain is still just, like, spewing. So it's, it's a little... That's a, that, that was a, pers- a personal favorite of mine when, when my cast came up with that. I said, okay, that's, like, the weirdest thing I've heard today. I love so that image. So exploratory brain surgery tea time. Fantastic. So that's how, you know, we close Act 1, and it's, it's super silly. And that's how we're going to close this podcast. Thank you again for coming on and being Thanks guest. Thanks for having me.